Thanks so much, Chris, for a wonderful family moment. And welcome, everyone, once again to Bethany Community Church. It is a privilege to worship with you. We are so grateful that uh, you're here today in preparation for Christmas as we worship together, a Christmas like none other. Please join me in prayer. Father, thank you that we have these moments together to pause from all that we live in the midst of during this unique season as we can now listen for your voice and allow you to speak hope to us, speak challenge to us, speak comfort to us, speak correction to us. Give us ears to hear what your Holy Spirit might say to us today, that we might be shaped to be people of hope in our world and that we might receive from you all the healing that you desire to give. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. I'm reading today from Matthew, the second chapter, verses five through eight, the response uh, regarding the star that is coming, gathering all the chief priests and scribes, Herod inquires where the Messiah is to be born. And then verse five, they said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. You, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you will come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people. And then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. And he said to them, Bethlehem, and then said, go and search carefully for the child. And when you found him, report to me that I too may come and worship him. This is the word of the Lord. One of the great divides that has unfolded in our lifetime is this growing distinction between wisdom and knowledge. I read a devotional this week, and I quote from it now. It seems that one of the most difficult lessons for us in the West to learn is that knowledge is not the same thing as wisdom. Even sincere spiritual seekers resist this truth. Becoming full of, quote-unquote, information in the world does not itself accumulate into wisdom. As St. Bonaventure once wrote, wisdom is confusing to the proud, but often evident to the lowly. Wisdom is not the gathering of more facts and information, as if that would eventually coalesce into truth. Rather, wisdom is a different lens than knowledge, a different way of looking at the world. And friends, we live today in an age when smart people filled with lots of knowledge about the Bible are, in spite of their knowledge, often prone to being proud and angry and argumentative and divisive and greedy and even violent at times and uncivil. And this should set off warning lights because we read in James 4, who is wise and understanding among you? If you're wise, show your wisdom by your good life, by deeds done in humility that come from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Wisdom does not come from heaven if it looks this way. It's earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder in every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from God is pure, peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. In other words, Wisdom is tied to peace, and the peace of Christ will be on display in wise people. And so our time together this morning is intended to help us follow Christ and embody Christ's wisdom, not grow 
that with knowledge, you know, a lot of facts, but rather to grow in wisdom. And to grow in wisdom, we need to embrace three significant changes. A change in our understanding of the wise men, a change in our understanding of Herod, and our change in our understanding of Bethlehem. Wise men will change how we view revelation. Herod will change how we view power. Bethlehem will change how we view place. And so let's look at these three things together this morning, beginning with the wise men and a change in our understanding of revelation. In other words, before the wise men, maybe we thought that uh, we get to Christ through our heads. If we think enough, learn enough, amass enough facts, defend enough doctrine, we become holy. Or if we're really holy, we have a lot of doctrine and a few ethical changes in our lives. But this new reality that we learn from the wise men is this, the outsiders get it with greater clarity and receptivity than the insiders because they have a curiosity and a humility from which we need to learn. There are uh, uh, likely two prophecies that influence these wise men called magi. And this word magi uh, comes from a Latin word from which we also get the word magic and magician. And what, what magi were, were they were people who kind of blended an understanding of spiritual reality with physical reality, and they, and they use the spiritual and physical realities together to seek revelation so that they could understand the universe, right? And so they were open to both physical reality and spiritual reality, and within the realm of spiritual reality, likely two prophecies influenced the Magi and caused them to travel from what is likely Iran, ultimately to Bethlehem. Uh, one prophecy comes from Numbers chapter 24, and there was a man named Balaam. Now, Balaam, interestingly, in Numbers 24, uh, we know from church history, was viewed as a Zoroastrian priest. And many people think that the Magi themselves were Zoroastrian priests. So Zoroastrianism, being the prevailing religion of Iran, would be a group of people familiar with the prophecy of Balaam in Numbers 24. And in Numbers 24, this is what we read. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel and batter the brow of Moab and destroy all the sons of tumult. This was a prophecy that Balaam made speaking about the ultimate prevailing of God's people over all of history because of this star that would rise, this ruler who would ultimately rule everyone. And of course, we read in Isaiah 9 <clears throat> that when the Messiah comes, the government will rule upon his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government, there will be what? No end. In other words, Christ will reign over every nation, every tribe, every tongue, every skin color. And the Magi saw this prophecy tied to a physical star rising in the east. It's really amazing. And then the second prophecy that would have informed the Magi uh, comes from Jacob in Genesis chapter 49, verse 10. Jacob, at the end of his life, is blessing his 12 sons who will ultimately become the 12 tribes of Israel. And uh, this is what he says regarding Judah. He says, the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor a, law, a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And to him, to Judah, shall be the obedience of all peoples. Judah will reign over everyone 
A star will come from the east, showing that there will be a king reigning over everyone. And so revelation comes from Balaam, who wasn't the best of guys. I won't go into it today. And from Jacob, who also had some faith problems. Jacob didn't behave as a saint because he didn't believe that God would give him God's blessings, even though God had promised to Jacob to bless him. Jacob didn't believe it, and that led to a life of lying and cheating and stealing, not to mention his ongoing fear and anxiety. In fact, Jacob's own summary of his own life was this, few and evil have been my years, and yet God uses Jacob to bring a revelation regarding the birth of Christ, and God uses Balaam, a bad prophet, to bring a revelation regarding the birth of Christ. And taken together, these two prophecies point to a star rising that will signal the coming not just of a king but of the king with a definite article which represents the answer to the deepest longings of the human heart but here's the big thing Herod then calls the religious leaders together after he meets the magi and the religious leaders are basically the seminarians and pastors of the day and he asks them about this king and they're like this yeah We know about him. He's going to be born in Bethlehem, according to the prophecy in Micah. And then they quote the Bible to Herod. But, and this is very important, there is no record of these scribes and Pharisees, these seminarians and pastors, no record of them actually looking up into the sky to see the star or actually listening to the news from the Zoroastrian priests and wondering if maybe they're on to something. And there's no record of, of the scribes and Pharisees going to Bethlehem and worshiping and bringing gifts. It's the outsiders who did that, not the insiders. The outsiders got it. The insiders missed it. Wow. I think that's significant. And I think the priests missed it because <laughs> they're a lot like me who also misses Christ too often. Here's what I mean. They, the priests, love the text. We love the text. We study it all the time. They love learning ethical constructs from the text. We love learning ethical constructs from the text. They love protecting uh, protecting orthodoxy. We love protecting orthodoxy. And as a result, because of our love of the text and our love of ethics and our love of protecting protecting orthodoxy, we tend not to listen to outsiders like the Zoroastrian priests. And we don't listen to outsiders, Democrats, Republicans, Muslims, yogis, Buddhists, Methodists, Anglicans, because we're afraid that they might pollute our orthodoxy. And they didn't pay much attention to creation, those scribes and Pharisees. And we don't pay much attention to creation. It's so easy in our hyper-insulated world to live entirely inside our head and view creation as nothing more than a prop in this ongoing drama in which our spirits are the only thing that matters. No. God is revealing to us through the text through our story, through our brokenness, through our suffering, through our joy, through our sorrow, through every gift. And as we've already heard, the heavens are declaring the glory of God. God is revealing God's character through creation as well. And what I love about the Zoroastrian priests is that they are looking for revelation everywhere. 
in the heavens, in the seasons, in the animal kingdom, in their own texts, and in the texts of other religions as well. Remember what it says in Deuteronomy 4.29? Seek God with all your heart. In other words, boom, wake up, pay attention. Pay attention to what God is saying through long fire seasons, as we've known this last summer, through the mass migration and immigration that is happening due to totalitarianism all across the world, through the meteoric rise in the number of Americans who are food challenged while others have too much and don't know what to do with it. Pay attention. What is God saying through all these things? And in all you're paying attention, ask this question. God, what do you have for me to learn right now through the news cycle, uh, through the seasons, through the glorious sunrise, through the, through the beauty of the rain, through your constant provision? What, God, are you saying? And please don't mishear me. Christ is central. And the end of history, Ephesians 1.11 says this, everything will be saturated with the glory of God. And our Bible is God's fullest revelation of Christ and as such is our final authority. But the playing field is big. If Christ is central and the Bible is the, is the, is the final authority, the playing field is big, is big. In Acts 17, 27, we read that Paul says this, God is not far from any of us. And Paul says that in the context of a sermon in which he uses phallic idols on a hillside in Athens to point people to Christ. And he uses Greek poetry. And he uses creation. Go deep into the Bible, friends, but be humble enough to learn from people very different than you. This has been a crazy year. And since the eight-minute tape of George Floyd, I've spent most of my reading time reading Native American and African American theologians and writings of women. And I've learned so much by reading and hearing those voices that, to be blunt, I'd never heard before. And I think I'd never heard because I wasn't paying attention. It's not good news of great joy, which shall be for Americans or evangelicals or upwardly mobile or highly educated. It's not good news of great joy, which shall be for the country with the strongest military. It's good news of great joy for all people. So recognize that there are people different than you who are seeking truth. And yes, people different than you who are revealing truth. Christ is the full and final revelation. The Bible is the clearest expression of Christ. But listen, pay attention to all that God has to say. This has, for me, changed my view so that I'm less combative now with people who have different worldviews than me more open to receiving what God has to say. The Magi teach us that, a different view of revelation. Herod brings us a different view of power. Uh, The ways of our world regarding power are pretty simple. If you have power, you need to defend it with force if necessary, (laughs) simply because the power's yours. You sacrificed for it, you fought for it, you bought it, you earned it. And they're only going to take your power from you if they pry it from your cold, dead hand. Power is something to be held on to. And nobody represents 
a view of clinging to power more than Herod. He wanted to know the exact time the star had appeared, presumably so that he could pinpoint the exact moment of this special child's birth. Now, Herod gets a bad rap, in my opinion. I mean, I understand why people don't like Herod. He was so addicted to his own power that he killed relatives who he perceived as a threat to the throne, including several of his own sons, two of whom he had drowned in the palace swimming pool. (laughs) He was egocentric. He was paranoid. He was unwilling to relinquish power right down to his last breath. He was a bad guy. But for all of that, I'm going to observe that Herod had one thing going for him. He understood something that we need to understand today. Herod understood that dueling kings is folly. Herod understood this. In reality, no one can serve two masters. There's only one king. That's why he was threatened by the birth of Christ. And those who follow any king will no doubt struggle at times with that king's reign. But Herod understood that everyone, when the day is done, can only have one authority. I wish Christ followers understood that principle as well as Herod does. Jesus said it. Can't serve two masters. We can only have one king. That translates, in my mind, to one ism. Not Christ plus Bernie Sanders socialism. Not Christ plus unfettered capitalism. Not Christ plus materialism plus consumerism, plus nationalism, plus uh, objectivism, plus postmodernism, plus environmentalism, plus anti-racism, plus racism. All isms are not equal, but any ism can become an idol, can become the thing with a definite article that defines our lives. And don't allow anything to define your life other than the one king, Christ. Because as Jesus said, when the day is done, you can't serve two masters. So if you want to be wise, you'll be less concerned about getting power and more concerned about submitting to power. Less concerned about holding on to power, more concerned about submitting to power. But not just any power. You will look for the one true king and want to align your life with that king. And the good news of Christmas is this, the king has come. Christ. So we allow Christ to transform virtually every area of our life, my relationship with my body, my relationship with my sexuality, my relationship with time, my relationship with my neighbors, my relationship with my enemies, my relationship uh, with my money. Every relationship shot through with the glory and reign of God. So we, we have to understand then that we're called to serve one king and, and then to critique anything that threatens the reign of Christ. Consumerism threatens the reign of Christ. Materialism threatens the reign of Christ. Racism threatens the reign of Christ. Unrestricted socialism threatens the reign of Christ. Unrestricted capitalism threatens the reign of Christ. Environmental degradation threatens the reign of Christ. Nationalism threatens the reign of Christ. So don't get caught up in all of these power streams saying, this is the answer. This is the way. This is the hope with a definite article. No, socialism is not the hope. Universal health care is not the hope. Capitalism is not the hope. There's one hope with a capital T-H-E, Christ. 
our king. Herod understood that. That's why he was so threatened by Christ that he had all the, Beth, uh, the babies in Bethlehem ultimately uh, killed. He did not want any other king because he knew only one king can reign. So don't get caught up in trying to serve two kings. It's folly. Take your cue from Herod and quote unquote, put to death your loyalty to any other king than Christ. Spend your energy submitting to the power of Jesus. Jesus said it this way, Matthew chapter six, don't worry about tomorrow. Don't worry about what you're gonna eat, what you're gonna drink, what you're gonna wear. Don't worry about the election. Don't worry about uh, the, the, the political structure. Those are not the with the definite article solutions. Vote, eat, wear clothes, but don't worry. Because there's only one king. There's only one kingdom. There's only one reign, Christ. This is freeing. We've come through a, a, quite a year <laughs> that's revealed lots of power structures competing for our ultimate loyalty. And I would suggest to you that that competition for our ultimate loyalty has led to polarization and tribalism and division within the church at large. And it's been very unhealthy. And we need to repent of that and acknowledge that we only have one king to serve. And that's King Jesus. Herod teaches us that. Herod knew there could only be one king. And then lastly, we see this. There's a transformation in how we view place when we look at Bethlehem. Uh, we used to think, perhaps, that place where we live isn't such a big deal. It's like the stage on which stuff happens. But there's a new reality that comes from this story. God is redeeming places. God cares about places. God wants to transform space, physical space, so that it becomes holy. God is not just interested in transforming people. God wants to transform place. The story of Jesus is a story of redeeming everything. And so we've already seen the redemption of people through the genealogy of Jesus that I shared a couple of weeks ago, which includes adulterers and murderers and liars and women who are involved in prostitution. God redeems people. If there's a kind of person that you'd think wouldn't be qualified for God's kingdom, you'll find such a person in Jesus' genealogy. So that's very good news for all of us in the room and all of us watching online, because what we know is this, no matter how broken our family story is, our broken family story becomes in Christ the story of redemption. I shared a little bit a couple of weeks ago the story of my adoption and Ancestry.com and uh, getting a notice that in my Ancestry uh, DNA thing, uh, a match had been found that was my birth mother, who I've never met. I will say to you that one of the redeeming moments of my life was sitting down at a conference at which I was speaking in Maryland, and I will never forget the moment. I sat down at my computer and I wrote a letter to my birth mother to post on uh, her website on ancestry.com. And so it was so powerful for me to think about, wow, 
This is the person who gave me life. And I was able to say to this person, I want you to know that you gave me up for adoption and I was adopted into a wonderful family and now I am privileged to enjoy a ministry and speak to people and I wanna thank you for the gift of life. That was redeeming to me. God redeems every story, including yours. And so you might be somewhere on this, on this uh, uh, spectrum of redemption, God redeeming your story. It's fine. Wherever you are in there, know that God is moving toward redemption of your story. But God redeems not only people and family systems, God wants to redeem places. And place is interesting because on the surface, I think many people are tempted to elevate their own place as the best place on the planet. Does that make sense? I mean, I love Seattle. And I know over the 25 years that I've been here as a pastor, I've often uh, tried to compare a beautiful place with a terrible place by mentioning um, uh, Yakima vis-a-vis Seattle. And And I've said, yeah, you know, Nazareth, it's like Yakima. And people laugh, you know. And when I'm in Canada and I'm speaking, uh, I usually teach in British Columbia, I always mention Saskatchewan and people, people laugh. Same thing. But here's what I'm learning as I get a little bit older. People in Yakima don't want to live in Seattle. People in Yakima love Yakima. People in Wenatchee love Wenatchee. People in Spokane love Spokane. And I'm, I bet there's a pastor today in Yakima talking about Bethlehem. And he says, yeah, Bethlehem, it's a... It's a It's a violent place, as we'll see in a minute, just like Seattle. (laughs) So listen, people love their place. And if you're in Washington state and you think poorly of some Southern state, I have news for you. Most people in the South don't want to move to Washington where it rains all the time. So the point of this story, the point of looking at Bethlehem is not to say, look, God can use nowhere towns because most quote-unquote nowhere towns aren't nowhere towns for the people living there. Instead, here's the point of this story. God redeems places because Bethlehem is not a place with a good reputation. Bethlehem is most well-known for an incident in Judges 19 and 20 associated with epic violence. Bethlehem was the home of this woman who was married by a Levite and became a, quote-unquote, of this Levite, a a concubine, right? An extra wife, we'll say it that way. And then she leaves him. She goes back to Bethlehem. He goes to get her. They stay there multiple days with her dad. And then on the way home... Uh, They have to spend the night somewhere. And because I know there are kids watching, I'm going to go into all the details here. But where they spend the night, this woman is so profoundly violated that it ultimately leads to like a terrible civil war. Read it, parents. Judges 19 and 20, sometime today, it's amazing. So when people think about Bethlehem, they think about the most violent incident in the entire Old Testament, this 
huge civil war that broke out that almost resulted in the entire genocide of the tribe of Benjamin. It's ridiculously, it's, it's pure bloodshed and violence and, and, uh, and sexual violence. It's terrible. So what does God do? God takes a place with a long history of violence marked by violence and depravity, and he fills it with the life of God by bringing the Prince of Peace into the world in Bethlehem. Wow. So that Bethlehem becomes characterized for the rest of history as the place where peace was born. I love that. It was violence. Now it's peace. It was sorrow. Now it's joy. It was poverty. Now it's abundance. It was oppression. Now it's justice. God is wanting to write a story in your heart, in your home, in our church, in Seattle, and in all kinds of places around the world where the people of God, by virtue of being filled with the life of Christ, become people who transform the place. The place then becomes a place of peace. That's what God wants to do. My favorite moments in life are these moments where I encounter someone and when someone enters my space, by virtue of the presence of Christ, they have a sense of peace. Has that ever happened to you? I love that. I remember in 1970s, I was studying architecture, Cal Poly, San Luis Obispo. And I became friends with an engineering student and this is, you know, mid-70s. He's a Vietnam vet, burnt out, PTSD. If you clap your hands, he'd jump. He was terrified. Had a drug problem. Uh, you know, he would, we became friends. He knew as a Christian, he hated God because of all that he'd seen. But he said, you know, Richard, <laughs> there's something about you. I love coming and talking in your dorm room. And I said, oh, I'm glad, I'm glad you like that. And then uh, as we were conversing one day, I was playing John Denver music, right? Rocky Mountain High, Sunshine on My Shoulder. Some of you are old enough to remember these tunes. Well, uh, this guy, he's, he said, man, I love that music. This was a time in history some of you who are younger wouldn't believe it. You didn't have access to music on demand. Like you had to physically go into a room and play a record. It was ridiculous. So he didn't have any money. He was living in his van. I said, listen, I said, Jeremy, anytime you want to listen to music, and I gave him a key to my room. I said, come on in anytime. Yeah, and you know, I'd, I'd come home from lunch some days, or I'd come home from an afternoon run, here he'd be laying on my bed, listening to John Denver. And I'll never forget, he said, he said, Richard, your room is my place of peace. What would it look like, couples, for you to say, we want, we want our home to be a place of peace for our neighbors. We want our marriage to be a place of peace. What would it look like, Bethany Community Church, for us to say, you know, we'd love to be a bastion of peace so that anyone who walks within, within this within this space, 
who walks on this property, who drives by today for our merry and bright. We want everyone to know the peace of God is here in this physical space because listen, the Bethlehem story tells us that's what God does. God redeems space. Some of the torchbearer schools were previously places of darkness. The torchbearer school in Austria uh, recently rebuilt. I think it was two years ago. They dedicated their building just about this weekend, two years ago. And uh, as they were digging up their previous building, they found a box and they kept shoving the box aside and shoving the box aside. And then eventually somebody said, we should open the box and see what's in the box. They opened the box. It was filled with bombs. And the bombs all had the swastika on it. They were bombs from Nazi Germany. The building, which was previously an orphanage, had been co-opted by the Nazi party and used as offices to plan the war. God redeems the space. The space of your home, the space of your dorm room, the space of the Bible school. We ran a ministry, my wife and I previously, before moving to Seattle, in the North Cascades on, on Highway 20. We had a little house church. Someone who would pop in frequently was another, you know, Vietnam vet, actually. And uh, he had had a hard life. We, I heard his stories. He lived in a state of fear and anxiety. One Christmas morning, our family is unwrapping Christmas presents. The Christmas tree is in the window. We're li- we live right on Highway 20. You can see our Christmas tree from the window. And my friend, uh, the Vietnam vet, he's driving by really fast and he stops and he pulls into our driveway and he comes up the stairs and he knocks on the door. And I open the door and he's high on something. I don't, I'm not sure what, but he's high. He's got sunglasses on. He's amped up. He's got a weapon. (laughs) And I'm here with my kids and my nieces and nephews. And we're trying to enjoy Christmas morning. And he never takes his sunglasses off. He goes, yeah, I knew. I knew you were a false prophet. I go, what? He goes, yeah, the Christmas tree. And then he quotes something in Jeremiah about phallic symbols or something, whatever. He says, yeah, I want to put an end to this now. Well, somebody's got a weapon. And they say, we're going to put an end to this now. I mean, that's a scary moment, right? So I was like this, hey, let's go outside and put an end to this. Because I don't want to shoot up my family at least. So we go outside and he's ranting a minute. And then I said, Steve, can you take your sunglasses off? He takes his glasses off. I said, Steve, look at me. I know your story. I love you. We've shared fellowship. We've shared meals. You've hugged my kids. We've had Bible studies together. He says, I'm not the enemy. Put down your weapon. And he got tears in his eyes. Immediately turned. He said, Richard, I'm sorry. And he hugged me. And he said, Merry Christmas. He said, I was about to snap. And you reminded me, this is what he said, you reminded me that God's peace wins. God's peace wins. Listen, this is my prayer, friends. My desire is that God would redeem your space, redeem your marriage, redeem your family, 
redeem our church so that we become, for all people, a place of peace. May that be our story as we move into 2021. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much that Bethlehem, (laughs) a place that had a reputation until you were born, of dramatic violence and civil war and genocide has become the place of peace. May our souls become places of peace. May our marriages become places of peace. May this church become a place of peace so that our world might know that in the midst of division and tribalism and fear and strife, by virtue of the revelation of Christ, you redeem places. Peace reigns, peace wins. In the name of Jesus, we pray, amen.